2: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless.
1: How to get 30, 30, to get 30, better to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. things are unraveling so quickly, I, I, I can't even keep up. Last week, it was McLean's layoffs, McLean's magazines, Canadian Business Magazine, rumors that it's going under completely, and a staggering list of buyouts from the Ottawa Citizen. Staggering. 15 buyouts. Why are they so remarkable? Because they are the senior most reporters and editors at The Citizen. They are The Citizen. In many people's conception, these are the people who comprise what The Citizen has been doing. And what The Citizen has been doing is what you would expect a capital city newspaper to do. The Citizen is sort of our Washington Post. This is the paper, more than any other, that keeps a steady, scrutinizing eye on our federal government. And there is no one at The Citizen who is more associated with keeping an eye on our federal government than Glenn McGregor. Glenn McGregor, instrumental force, won all the awards for his many investigations. I mean, his investigations are like a list of the major political scandals in, in recent Canadian history. The In-N-Out scandal, the Robocall scandal, the Duffy scandal. A big part of that was Robert Fife, but before Robert Fife, it was Glenn McGregor. McGregor is, in some ways, an old-school investigative journalist. In some ways, he's new school. He's one of the first guys in the country to use data in his investigations. He did a really interesting look at all the spending that the federal government was doing under the Conservatives, and he found out that there was a disproportionate amount of spending going to conservative writings. It was going to writings where conservatives had been elected, and it wasn't supposed to be. Story after story at The Citizen came as a result of Glenn McGregor. And it's it's just hard to imagine what The Citizen is going to be, not just with his absence, but with everybody else's. Where are these people going? Many of them are leaving journalism entirely, going into academia, going into other pursuits, politics perhaps. I don't know where Glenn's going. He won't tell me. I asked him where he's going next. Is he leaving journalism entirely? Is he, is he leaving print journalism? Maybe he'll have told the world by the time you hear this podcast, but he wouldn't tell me. He agreed to talk about everything else, though. I had a lot of questions for Glenn McGregor. You can hear my conversation with him in just a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Nicholas Friesen, Helena Zip, Brooke Smith, David McCorkle, Joseph Pulsani, Zoe. Marcus Elson, Phil Lichty, and Alan Duquette. Alan, why did you decide to be awesome?
1: I choose to support Canada Land because it makes my morning commute a whole lot more interesting.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems... And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterH.E.L.P.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity. help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at FreshBooks.com, the cloud accounting solution for non-accountants. If you need to send invoices, if you need to track your time and bill for your hours or collect your expenses, if you are self-employed or running a small enterprise where it matters whether you spend hours and days figuring out your taxes at the end of the year, figuring out how much money you made, if you'd like to spend less time doing that, if you'd like to get paid quicker, and fresh. FreshBooks always seems to get me paid quicker, then you want to check this out. And here is something that I learned just this week about freshbooks.com because they look at their entire customer base and they have noticed something kind of incredible. On average, their customers double their revenue in 24 months. We don't know if it's because you use FreshBooks that you're Revenue doubles in 24 months. But that really is something worth considering. Maybe it's just an indication that when people get serious about themselves, serious about their careers, and then it just naturally follows that their businesses improve because they're caring more about their businesses and showing a bit more self-respect. Or maybe there is some magical attribute where if you start using FreshBooks, you get paid twice as much money within two years. I don't know. But I do know that if you check out FreshBooks for free for 30 days, it's a pretty good chance you're going to become a customer. And when you do, I hope you will tell them that Canada Land sent you. Okay, so Glenn, the news uh, uh, came out just a couple days ago that you're leaving The Citizen, and then just this gutting revelation of 15 senior most reporters and editors of The Citizen taking buyouts, your name on that list, Andrew Potter, others, and we're not going to talk about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't have anything to say about, you know, why any of those other people decided to go. I mean, I had my own reasons for, for moving on now, and I had nothing to do with the company. I mean, the company has treated me exceptionally well. Uh, they've supported my journalism for 18 years, and uh, it was a great place to work. And there's, I have no complaints. I've never had any, you know, political interference in any of my reporting, even though, you know, some of the stuff I was doing was getting in people's faces a lot of time. It was the kind of thing that you think would trigger some uh, blowback, but, uh, they never interfered in that process. So it was, it was a really good experience. And, and, uh, you know, everybody knows the challenges the industry is facing right now. It's not, that's not a mystery. So,
0: you know, I'm not really looking for much of an explainer about why you would take a buyout or why all those other people would. I mean, as you suggest, it's self-evident what's happening in the industry and what's happening at post media, nor am I really like looking for you to like trash talk the citizen. I think what a lot of people, are trying to fathom right now and get some I and mean, people are actually worried about this who's going to cover these things who and 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 given a choice between you know this amalgamation of the sun and the citizen and the newsrooms being smashed together and throughout the post media chain it seems like one paper in each market is being favored the fact that the sun's newsroom would be favored over the citizen's is baffling considering the work that's come out of The Citizen. And I, is there anything you can tell people who are just wondering about these things?
2: I, you know, I I, I don't even know that that's the case, to tell you the truth. And I'm at a disadvantage here because I work on the Hill, right? So I don't work out at The Citizen proper. So I don't know, you know, I, I have no idea what's really happening there. So, and, and it's, you know, it's all above my pay grade anyway. I, I do know that, I mean, at least for parliamentary journalism, people are still going to be doing great work reporting. I mean, there's there's more outlets covering the Hill now than any time I've ever seen in my career. I mean, you have uh, the, the, the conventional media that still has bureaus with very strong reporters in all of them. Uh, CBC is ramping up its bureau. Uh, Global Mail just hired a bunch of people to work in their Ottawa bureau. And then you have uh, outfits like uh, iPolitics, uh, which is you know, relentless in in covering the hill at a certain level, and and the hill times, which kind of covers the hill like a, mm-hmm. you know, like a small town newspaper, and then these new entrants like like vice and buzzfeed, uh, huffington post. So there's more eyeballs on what's going on in parliament now than there has ever been. So I'm I'm, I mean, I understand why people get get nervous about these things when you have these shakeups at the corporate level, but. In terms of the journalism that's being done, I don't think it's been compromised by this yet. And I mean, I honestly think th- there's a lot of churn that always goes on in journalism. But I, th- I think a lot of it happens when governments change hands. So uh, th- we saw this bit back in 2006 when the conservatives came in. There was some reshuffling. People were moving around. I think a lot of journalists see it as a good time to to reassess what they've been doing and, and look for different things. And some people do go from journalism into government. I mean, James Cudmore from CBC just a couple of weeks ago, announced he was going to go work for the defense minister, uh, and that's and that's normal. And I don't think it's even a lot of people like to believe it at, that it's some kind of indication of the political bias of the press gallery, which it isn't, because it's usually just a small percentage of people who, who go to what they sometimes call the dark side. So I, I don't see that as, as an indicator of of any kind of bias. Uh, and I think it's just normal. And, and when that happens, then you get kind of a domino effect where somebody moves around and, you know, Bob Fife goes to the globe and then, you know, someone else is going to go somewhere else. I mean, it just, I think it's just kind of a natural thing that happens every once in a while. Is it exacerbated now by the difficulties the industry overall is facing? Yeah, probably. I mean, we know what the what the, the issues are on the revenue side. But I, I don't think that uh, it's necessarily like some kind of mass exodus that people think it is.
0: You use the word normal so many times that it's got – it's, it's making me even more skeptical. So uh, uh, editor-in-chief uh, of the citizen Andrew Potter leaving for academia, I believe. Uh, James – Yeah, he's
2: going yeah. yeah, to work at McGill. Yeah.
0: Right. James Cudmore leaving for government. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about – I mean, Jen Gerson made the point on my show a month ago. How many retirement parties do you go to? A lot of people take buyouts, but there aren't a lot of retirement parties. Right. So this isn't just the usual shift and churn and people like, you know, trading players from one news organization to the other. This is a, a senior generation, the people who maybe are best at this, a lot of them leaving the game entirely. And it's it's um, – I'm not making any doomsday scenario uh, projection here that that's the end of political journalism and, and it's, it's great. We'll talk about the younger people and the new outfits that are doing this. But something is happening. This is not normal.
2: I, I you know I'd have to see like the like the total numbers and, see, and look at it historically is what percentage of the press gallery is leaving now compared to people who left in the '90s or '80s. You
0: know, I, 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 this I, does not befit a former Frank magazine. It, I mean, you know, you're, you're, I think you've got skin in the game, and it's it's you're you're, you're being careful about. You know, you you've got your own next move in your career, and and the sky is not falling. That that's fine. But I mean, we just want to understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, a
2: lot of the people who are leaving now are of a certain age. I mean, we have a lot of uh, people who are baby boomers who are moving on, right? And if you look at, the, you know, the period of the press gallery massively expanded was probably when those people were first getting their jobs in journalism in, in the in the 70s and 80s. And that's, that's when yeah. the, the, the gallery, you know, went from being in the small outfit that you could probably fit into uh, a, a decent-sized conference room to this behemoth now where we have like over 300 people, uh, and you include all like, the, the camera people and technicians, uh it's there's a lot of people here so i, I you know i think a lot of those people are, are reaching the age and you know they're, they're in their 50s and 60s now they've done it they've they've gone through a series of governments and they're thinking they'd like to like to either retire or, or move on and i think some of the people who are leaving the business now are although they're not quite retirement age they are actually retiring or going to sort of a semi-retirement
0: yeah but they're going to work for another 20 years
2: a lot of these yeah, people I of imagine will, you and, sure. uh, and then there's a lot of good opportunities for that and for them to to do that now because there's all the kinds of little outlets that you can freelance for i mean uh you know uh, one of my, my my favorite colleagues is a guy named alex binkley he used to work for canadian press in the in the 1970s uh, and 80s and uh has great deep institutional knowledge and he works in the hot room here with me because he, 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 he freelances and contributes to a shipping magazine called fair play so when i was writing about paul martin's shipping company back at, during the, the, the final days of the martin government he was at terrific resource I could go and talk to him and and he would say oh you should be looking at this and this and find out where this ship is registered and things like that. So there's th- those people that institutional knowledge doesn't necessarily get flushed away when they when they leave mainstream news organizations. I think it stays a lot of people's the, the, you know the, the, the some of these startups we talked about that are using people like that. Black Locks Reporter is using a lot of those people uh, to, to, to do that kind of journalism where they cover more of the regulatory policy side of, of things.
0: Yeah, They're do, doing a very good job of going through procurement documents, the paper trails, and, yeah, and finding stories out of that.
2: fantastic. Yeah, and that's a great source. And that's something that, yeah, younger people who are coming in, leaving journalism school right now, getting their first jobs on the Hill, probably aren't up to speed on that stuff, but they, they'll learn it quickly.
0: Let's go back to when you were with Frank. And it's, it's interesting for me to note that somebody can, you know, they say that every pirate eventually wants to be a captain or, you know, everybody gets respectable <laughs> with old age. Uh, not, not to call you old, but Frank very much being um, throwing stones uh, and from an outsider's perspective, irreverent and uh, unflinching and taking on all comers. And uh, can you put me back in that space and tell me how you got involved and in what the atmosphere was like back in the heyday?
2: Of, sure. For, I mean, I, I, I never wanted to do journalism, and I, and I didn't go to journalism school. I, I went to Ottawa U, and I was taking communications, uh, which prepared me to do exactly nothing. Um, but it was a fun four years and a bit. Uh, and then I, so I, I finished, and I'd heard, heard through channels that this – Startup Magazine was looking for someone to sell advertising. So I went down there and and, um, I knew the editor, uh, Michael Bate, a little bit through some friends. And uh, so they sent me out to try and sell like like display ads in Frank. And I walked up and down Bank Street, the main drag here in Ottawa, going into every little store and sticking this. Horrible looking magazine in their face and saying, "Hey, you want to buy an ad?" And uh, three days of that, I, I finally kind of limped back to the office and I said, "Look, this is not going to work. No one's bought a single ad. We're just it's not going to not going to go." Uh, and they said, "Well, okay. Do you have any ideas for a story?" Uh, and at that time, I had a bunch of friends uh, who were going through the journalism program at Carleton, uh, and uh, they were complaining about the sexual harassment in the in the school there. So I, I wrote a story about this and. Uh, Gave it to the publisher David Bentley, who now publishes uh, All News Nova Scotia, and uh, he looked at it and said, oh, "Well, we can't publish that. It's incredibly libelous." Uh, but let me rewrite it. So he re- rewrote it in the Frank style, and 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 then I stayed, and then kept doing that for uh, over eight year, almost nine years. Um, and it was it was terrific. I mean, it was it, uh, you know Frank gets uh, knocked a lot for being inaccurate or for being. Reckless and uh, offensive sometimes, and it is all of those things. Uh, But it it really, I I think it kind of made me the reporter I am because the thing about working for Frank and it was then it came out every two weeks. As now it's almost sort of daily now because it's online. But uh, back then you couldn't you couldn't sit on a any story you wrote had to be exclusive. It had to to. Endure for two weeks and you had to make sure no one else was going to get it. Uh, otherwise, it would just uh, get run over. So uh, it, it made you really kind of entrepreneurial. And if you can get somebody, if you can call somebody up and say, hey, I'm calling from Frank Magazine and get them to talk to you. <laughs> uh, that's that's a feat. So, you know, when I went to the Citizen. It was kind of fish in the barrel after that. It was, it was comparatively easy. But uh, I, I just I, I think that that kind of approach, where you're looking for the off-agenda stories and the inside story behind the thing that's on the front page of the, of the Globe or the Star of that day, that that kind of. Uh, taught me how to do that, and and it was really valuable, uh, that experience.
0: I think we probably need to do, like, an oral history of Frank at one point or another. I just remember, like, being in high school and seeing this terrible-looking thing. They they wouldn't even keep it with the other magazines. It would be up at the convenience store, like, (laughs) next to the lottery tickets, this black-and-white newsprint thing with kind of poorly photoshopped Kind of like a mad magazine, but it always felt like more dirty than porn to me. And uh, you get older and read the thing, and it's so written in this kind of silly jargon, and yet this became kind of a necessary pressure release valve. As much as it might have been considered scurrilous or hated, uh, there was no one else doing that sort of thing, and it it seemed like you guys were the place to bring certain kinds of stories, and, and, and it broke a number of significant stories.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean the running joke on that was that was that people would would slide it uh, inside their copy of Hustler magazine that they were buying, so that people wouldn't see them see them buying Frank. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it in its in its heyday, and I'm talking about sort of the early to mid '90s when there was no competition from online. Uh, it, it was just that that was it was able to take stories that the mainstream press, and I hate that expression, mainstream, but for lack of a better word that they wouldn't publish or or were, there was about them so we I mean, a lot of our coverage in the early days was about about journalism and and, and we do goofy stuff like you know charting the decline of Peter Mansbridge's marriage and things like that it was all you know gossipy and fun but it all, it, it had a, it had a role to it in and there was some serious stuff we did on the, in the media on media file. kind of actually a lot of the stuff that you're doing now was kind of frank's bread and butter back in in that period Yeah,
0: that remedial media column in frank Right. Yeah. And it's interesting how f- fine the line is. You know, you can be doing something and it feels like it's just completely derided and scorned and considered like gross tabloid gossip. But you're taking shots at Mike Duffy and expenses. And then the next thing you know, that is a, a mainstream news story, a, a scandal that is it goes up to the prime minister's office and s- things can very quickly turn from, oh, why would you talk about that to, well, this is obviously something that needs to be taken very, very seriously at the highest levels of government and by the mainstream media.
2: Yeah, well, well, Duffy was a regular target of Frank when I was there, Um, and it was because that he seemed to know all the inside information but wouldn't share it. Uh, He he, he talked about how he knew where all the bodies were buried on Parliament Hill, and Frank's line was, why don't you tell people then, you know, if that's that's the case. you Aren't are you sort of in that business, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, uh, and and I did a story when I was there, I mean, I didn't do a lot of the media on media covers. that was mostly Michael Bate who did it, but I did a story there about... A uh, Duffy going to Duke University uh, putatively to speak to Canadian studies students because they have a, a Canadian studies program there. And he went on the radio and talked about uh, how he's down there talking to these people who are fascinated by Canada, interested in politics. And uh, as it turned out, we had a tip and it turned out to be true. He was there actually at the Duke University weight loss center which is a fairly esteemed program for for weight loss and we confirmed it there we ran a story about it and duffy sued us over the, i think it was over the headline which was something like it was something probably libelous in the headline uh, which i in fairness didn't write and, and you uh, called him mike puffy that was the 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 frankly well mike puffy was the line they used to call him all the time and we had to think of the puffster which is kind of this ongoing cartoon right script, you know kind of poking fun at and okay, that was fine and and then when i left Frank uh, Duffy was one of the first guys I called, and I and I phoned him up, and I, because I knew I was going to be working with him, on the hill or at least uh, bumping into him regularly. I didn't want it to be awkward, so we had a great chat, and I really liked Mike, and, and he worked in the hot room where I work, which is which is the sort of bullpen, in center block on the hill, and he used to uh, write his scripts for a show out of there, and his his producer worked with him here. So I'd see him all the time, and we got along, like, famously for nine years. I mean, I wouldn't say he was a close friend or anything like that, but, uh, you know, we'd talk about stories sometimes, and and it was terrific. And then when I started doing the stories about his expenses back in uh, December 2012, I think it was the first one, uh, he came out and accused me of trying to get payback for Frank because he had... Uh, apparently, won a lawsuit uh, over that a settlement. Was it? it was, uh, uh, I think it was a settlement. I mean, that's what Beta yeah. said. a couple of times it was some kind of over, sort of, over I, the weight loss story, paid.
0: and then his his line is that you're trying to get payback by exposing his yeah. his, his expenses. And it was
2: like, what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> like, no, I just did it because it was a good story. Like, uh, you know, it was interesting, and you're a public figure, and it was, you know, it's. It, the, and also, when I wrote that first story about his expenses and, uh, that he'd been claiming, I didn't think it was going to be this big lead to what ultimately became the Senate expense scandal.
0: Might have had bearing uh, on the Fife. last election. I mean, you know. The, the, the Yeah, I mean, a
2: big part of that was Bob Fife.
0: Definitely, yeah. But but, uh, but you were the first to write about Duffy's expenses being a problem. Am I right about that?
2: Yeah, so we wrote about that and then we wrote about one. Uh, the story came like a month later that I did about his, him trying to get a health card from Prince Edward yeah. Island so that he would have some documentation to back up the claim that he lived there. And that's kind of when it really kind of kicked into into full gear, and and then uh, yeah, and then and then Fife had that amazing story, but but not to that really broke it open.
0: Credits, an interesting thing. I mean, part of it is you know people have a lot of reverence for. Um you know, the, 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 the legwork and the and the intelligence and the thoroughness of going through and, you know, you, you've been doing versions of data journalism for a long time and you certainly you're involved in that side of things. But a lot of it is sometimes just being the first to bring up a topic and introduce into the public discussion. It's OK to question this person in this area. And I think, you know, I've, I've heard the expression, you throw a little chum in the water and you kind of break through a, a, a bit of a, you know, a, the uh, hesitancy that people have, uh, Sybilith, you know, oh, that's 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 off limits. And once it's out there, uh, it starts to become more of a collaborative thing. I mean, that's a big part of the process. It's just sort of
2: yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the press gallery is still kind of a, a, a herd animal, and and it, it sometimes it takes a while for the direction of the herd to shift. And, and I'll give you a good example of that where it hasn't shifted yet, and I think it it might still is. I had done a couple little. They weren't even stories. I don't think they were even published in the newspaper, but they were blog hits about the Prime Minister's wife and her clothing. And I got a lot of grief on this, like more than I've ever got on robocalls or anything like that. And and a large part of it is because I think a lot of the people who followed me on Twitter uh, were doing so because they didn't like the Tories and they would like the stories that Steve Maher and I were doing about Dean Del Mastro. Or, or the we're r- talking about the Trudeaus in Vogue now. Yeah, the Trudeaus, in v- not just in Vogue. I mean, that, that came a little bit after... We'd already done a, f- a few things about this relationship she seemed to have to her stylist, who yeah. uh, is um, Jessica Mulroney, right? The, the, so she'd he, be the daughter-in-law of the former prime minister. You took it on the chin for that. Yeah, I, saw you just getting I was getting a, a, a lot, lot of, of abuse on social that. media, And it, it was just – I mean, I thought it was an interesting story because here like, you have you have Jessica Mulrooney who had this relationship at one time with Burke's Jewelers and also with the Bay, sort of the high-end – Line at, at the Hudson's Bay, and she was apparently acting as the stylist for Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, choosing which, helping choose which clothes she was going to wear, and then she shows up for a meeting with the Queen in London, and she's got this brooch on that that uh, it comes from Burks and it's worth like seven thousand dollars, and Burks put out a press release, I'm starting to go, well, wait a second, like. Is this? Do we really want the prime minister's wife to be kind of a walking billboard for the Canadian fashion industry? I mean, I think it's great that she's supporting Canadian designers and companies. But it felt like a co-branding exercise. Yeah, or it's, something. Like, it's like, a, like a really valuable product placement she was giving. And then we found out like, there was more. There's other ones that were a bit like that. Like, um, her, so so uh, Sophie's uh, uh, I guess maybe half sister-in-law. So that would be Margaret Trudeau's daughter worked for this this Montreal hipster clothing line called Moose Knuckles and sure enough Sophie shows up uh, in Europe, wearing a jacket from Moose Knuckles, and Moose Knuckles puts out stuff on the social media highlighting this. So it was just getting a little bit too close. And, and it wasn't quite ready for prime time, that story yet. I was just, that's why I was writing blog posts about it, I was raising some questions. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then they show up in Vogue, right? And she's wearing this $7,000 or $6,000 dress. And it just seemed like, eh, I don't know. And so I started. I don't think I even wrote about that. I think I started putting out stuff on Twitter about it, saying, "Is this is this really the role that she should be doing? I mean, is this, is this appropriate? You know, you've got seven percent unemployment and you know, her <laughs> <our> economy, <laughs> the price of oil is." <laughs> Where it is, and Alberta's about to become a dust bowl. Do we really want the prime minister posing in high-end fashion magazines? So then I was accused of being a sexist because if if he'd opposed you know, for in Sports Illustrated it would have been a different story. Anyway, it was it was a fascinating little exercise to go through, and I think though, but I mean, you talk about just to circle back to what you're saying about throwing chum in the water. There's chum in the water now, I think, a little bit about her and this kind of stuff. And I know they've, they've kind of scaled that back a little bit. You don't see them doing so much of that right now. Uh, and I think that, I mean, I think she could become a, an, an ongoing story of interest to in the press gallery. There was that strange moment on Martin Luther King Day where she broke into song at Ottawa City Hall. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> she's going to be interesting, like, you know, and. and uh, Declaring fair game,
0: I guess. And and it's, it's the kind of thing where I think you, t- you can take some knocks for. You know, people considering it trivial or gossipy, and yet you never know where something's going to go. I mean, you start talking about about Duffy's. I mean, first it starts with the weight loss, not that that's necessarily connected, though he would he would say so. But then you talk about the expenses, and then even once you're at the point of like, I think a lot of people say, "Well, so what about these Senate expenses? We probably figured they were doing that." But then you start to get this insight into the p the pmo and what kind of levers get pulled and a personal check being written you know yeah. you, you, you never know when you start to tug on a thread where it's going to take you um i don't know it's it's it's. It, i think the first step is just being willing to put yourself in front of that and say look it's not my job to be classy or liked you know yeah, it's, I, it's my job it's, to, to it's,
2: poke journalism is not a popularity contest and you, you got to be prepared to get up people's noses. And, and it really offends people when you're doing stories, not so much on the public policy front, when you're doing things that are more personal like that, like Duffy's weight loss or, or, or like Sophie's designer outfits.
0: And- well, we're very proper here like that. And that's still, it's still, uh, something that gets done routinely elsewhere, but it's, it's, you know, the public I think is, is very quick to kind of dismiss that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that, you know, there, there's, there's a, there's the nice side of that that we we want to be a little bit more elevated in our discourse than perhaps America or like you know this kind of rabid British press. But then when you see the connection between those little stories and what they what they turn into, um, there's 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 I think a flip side to being a bit too proper. Where I I, I even look at kind of the, the the way that these things ultimately play out. Like if in the United States we found out that the chief of staff for Barack Obama wrote like a personal check. A personal check to a senator that later was the subject of of, uh, bribery charges, I don't think that would, like, it, it feels like even though these things become, you know, the front and center, the biggest story in the country, all of these scandals at the end kind of get muted. Not, not... You know, do you, do you agree with this? You, you see what I'm getting not like put under the under the rug, but like what is the outcome of uh, ultimately of the Gerald Regan? What is the alco- outcome ultimately of of the Duffy Gate Nigel Wright thing? What is the outcome ultimately of of the robocalls thing? I mean, it lands on one staffer, and everybody kind of forgets about it and moves on. And you know, you know, we never had a moment where like you know Nixon resigning. There's nothing. The consequences, Airbus, all these things, and it, it always seems to kind of like go out with a whimper.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the Canadian condition too. Like we're all just. Too kind of nice about these things, and we don't want it to be awkward, and we want to smooth things over and and and, and let it go. Uh, you know, in, in fairness, the Duffy thing, you know, the press gallery completely turned on that, and that was consumed by it. So, uh, and it, whatever the outcome of his trial is, I struggle to wonder how he's going to, if if he were acquitted on all the 31 charges, if he's going to be able to come back into the Senate and and.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm more focused on how, How uh, I mean, you, you might argue that Harper did not get out of that unscathed because it had an impact on the election, but but why Nigel Wright? I mean, how can you have somebody accepting a bribe but not giving one? And some of the stuff that happened where it, it might have been more than just a Senate story, it felt like that was kind of dealt with effectively.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, our, our, I think our, our political culture here isn't nearly as vicious. And keep in mind, like, the country is still run by a fairly small group of essentially aristocrats from West Mountain, Forest Hill, you know, that, uh, that, that, that there really is a clubbiness to it. And, and that's why I really, I find, maybe this goes back to my Frank background, but I find those kinds of relationships the most interesting. The fact that Brian Mulroney and Paul Martin, you know, were, were sort of neighbors or lived nearby and, and uh, you know, went to all the same parties in Westmount. Uh, you
0: know, it tells you a ton. And there's this like, oh, don't go there. What's at your business? Who, who's at whose wedding? Who's married to who? Yeah. But it, it, it tells you quite a bit. And like why the public shouldn't be aware of those relationships, I can't That's imagine.
2: right. And there, there seems to be a, 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 the sense of, well, we shouldn't get into this stuff because it's not proper. A, a, and there, there's such an enormous collision between the political class and the business world in Canada that I don't think you would, yeah. they they would be tolerated in the United States. Uh, no, we haven't even got started to go there. But there, yeah. that's really where there's so a web. look at our new fund- Finance Minister. I mean, th- this is a guy, you know, Bill Morneau, uh, very nice guy. Um, seems really honorable intentions. I think he's into politics for the right reasons. Uh, he's an extremely wealthy guy. He's, a, he's the richest guy to, to serve in cabinet since Paul Martin. Uh, he has mm-hmm. a place in Provence and uh, he has uh, still, uh, although he stepped away from the, the, his company business, this Morneau Chappelle. This, this big uh, uh, HR and pension firm, uh, he still, as far as I know, owns a, lar- a large chunk of it. Uh, that's going to collide regularly with his public interest as finance minister. And yet it's one of those stories people like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to get into his personal stuff, right? There seems to be this thing about, oh, you can't intrude in someone's personal life that uh, as soon as you start asking about family connections or where they live or – you know, even what kind of clothes they like to wear, then it's seen as being beyond the pale that you've you've you but but you don't know how it's going to turn out, right? Like you don't know where that's going to lead. You're, you're,
0: yeah, when you follow it, it, it could go anywhere. Yeah, and that's
2: the thing that's always I mean, especially at the time, of the citizens really interested me the most is the space between the personal and the public, with with uh, particularly with cabinet ministers. You know how this this can possibly color, and it really came to the fore with Paul Martin, and it, it, you know, he owned a, a company that was probably worth about six hundred million dollars. And uh, as prime minister, that would regularly conflict with some of the things that he was having to make decisions about in terms of foreign yeah. policy, on taxation, all those things. And the res- his eventual response was, OK, I'm, I'm going to sell the company to my kids. And, and that seemed to be enough for people. <laughs> right? They said, OK, well, fine. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, no conflict there anymore. That still galls me that that, that, was, that was considered acceptable. In the U.S., there's no way – Someone would, uh, you know, a cabinet secretary
0: would be able to get away with that. Well, there's a lot that, that 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 galls, and it seems like you know something something is done, and that whatever it is, it seems to placate. And you know, the robocall thing, we're talking about something a, a a scandal that involves the basic essence of democracy, like depriving people of of their vote, confusing them from their vote, removing them from their vote, taking them away from their role as a citizen, and for this ultimately to rise up, okay, finally it's recognized that it happened, but one 22-year-old is held responsible? Yeah. I, I mean, I know that that's like a, like, you know, maybe that you, you you won. Did you win the, the Missioner for that one? Uh, yeah, our,
2: well, our news organization won the Missioner, yeah.
0: You guys won the Missioner for that. I mean, this is, of course... What investigative journalism should, should be finding, and, and it's it's why you know to, to loop back on all these people, including yourself, leaving the citizen. Like that's the kind of stuff I wonder who's going to be the, who's going to break the next story like that. And yet, as much as it can be kind of like a pinnacle of your career, I don't think we know everything that happened. I don't think that everybody was held responsible. No, it's for, it's, a,
2: it's a it's a story that's kind of unfinished and, and incomplete yeah. and. It may be as it seems. I mean, when Steve Marr and I were working on this, we'd argue back and forth about what we thought really happened. And I was always kind of being the, the doubter and the denier saying, maybe it was just one guy. Maybe it was just Mike Sona acting alone, and maybe there was no conspiracy. Uh, but you got to do that when you're investigating. You got to try yeah, that I, hypothesis to see does that, it. Fit? I mean, that's that's what the court has said, right? I mean, there could be the court has said there's probably other people were involved, but they might have been minor players too. I mean, it could be that there was no involvement of the party, and you know the robocalls thing showed we, we got an enormous amount of kudos for that, and it was lovely to win awards and, and go to fancy parties at the Governor Generals. Uh, I still think. The stories that Tim Naumens and I did on the In-N-Out scandal back in 2006, 2007 were more important and were more incriminating for the Conservatives with respect to election law than the robocalls was, but it wasn't sexy, right? It was really hard to explain. It was essentially an accounting shell game where they were moving money around through wire transfers, Uh, but it was the people in the top ranks of the Conservative Party who were involved in this, and they did it willingly, trying to... Game the elections law to spend over a million dollars more on advertising than anybody else did in the election campaign, and it made a difference. I mean, that was you, you can go into a yeah. million dollars more broadcast advertising in the final days of a of a closely fought campaign. That matters. Uh, the robocalls thing it didn't even work in Guelph, right? So like you know it was it was it was an, an attempt, and and at its lowest level, it could have been essentially a college prank by a couple of kids that failed, or it could have been something more than that. We don't know, but but the in an out case, you know, we've got an admission of guilt from the Conservative Party in court that they had done this and it was really bad. And, and that thing, I think it set the tone for the next few years that they could get away with it because they didn't really suffer any any serious consequences. I mean, John Iverson, my colleague, described it as a bicycle crash, uh, saying that it was people didn't care about it, it wasn't interesting. And then... The thing that made Robocall sexy was you had this mysterious figure, Pierre Poutine. We had this long, drawn-out chase through the court documents, and you know, people using uh, uh, you know the technology to hide their IP addresses, and it was it was really fun. You know, it was like it was like something to see. A,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's a good story to tell. I mean, to me, it was it was really disgusting. Just the the uh, the sneering like joke of, oh, we'll call this character Pierre Poutine as we subvert the democratic process. Uh, I
2: mean, it was was, uh, there's this great moment when Steve and I were working on this and and we had having these court documents faxed to us. We'd, We'd already written our first story on it. Um, but we didn't know who Pierre Poutine was. And we had these court documents faxed to us from Edmonton where the investigator had filed an affidavit saying what he knows so far that he's learned uh, through his investigation. And that's – then we see the name Pierre Poutine come up on the fax machine and Mar and I just turned to each other and uh, we either hugged or high-fived or something because we knew this was an incredible hook and it and it gave – the scandal, a, a, a presence in a, in a face, and, I, and so Mar immediately started writing the story, and I ran over to my computer and tweeted something about how the name Pierre Poutine is going to be on everyone's lips, and 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 it yet it, it remains.
0: You know, the, the, the Canadian temperament and the culture gets blamed for why these things don't have more consequences and why people don't care more, and and, and how governments can even carry on after these things are exposed. Part of me just wonders if we're just lacking in. The you know not the nonfiction section the journalism and people's interest in journalism but these are great stories that never get dramatized I mean Duffy is an incredible figure you know when you talk about a journalist who who keeps secret files and is more of a power broker and, and a glad hander who's got his eye on on the Senate. I mean, you couldn't make a character like that up. And and yet we never kind of get that story told. We never get these stories put to people in ways that that Hollywood does a pretty good job in the States, I think, of of telling stories about their public life and their political culture. Uh, So you think maybe we should
2: do the people versus Michael Duffy?
0: Maybe sort of the thing is that I know that it would be
2: miniseries. terrible. I know that if we did make it, it would be bad. That's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. We're not we're not good at that stuff. <laughs> you know, we're just you know uh, we were talking about the other night about whether Mar, Mar wrote a pretty good book, fictionalized book called Deadline about a press gallery reporter and you know gets drawn into this whole intrigue and murder and sex and stuff and like could that work as a television miniseries? You know? yeah, it would be fantastic. Except we, we, we yeah we would screw it up. It would be like they'd put Eric Peterson in the lead or something like that. It would be, be dreadful.
0: As much as the public might at times uh, take issue with you, you are on their side. You're trying to tell them things, and y- your job is just to get this stuff out in front of them. And uh, and it's tr- it's terrific fun.
2: That's well, nice of you to say. It makes it sound a lot more honorable than it really is. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not driven by any great kind of. Uh, Desire to represent the interests of the people. Yeah. It's like getting good stories. It's like getting on the front page. I, mean, I Journalists are all – we're all egomaniacs, right? We all want to see our name in print above the fold. We want to have a story that people are going to talk about.
0: Sure, and the hunt is fun and the adrenaline of the whole situation and seeing a story break through. All that's fun and not necessarily appealing to these these higher principles. And yet I think you can take solace at the end of the day that if if you've, you know, contributed to to people having a greater understanding of what the hell's going on, it's it's a noble thing to do, whether whether that's what got you in it or or not. (laughs) Look,
2: I'm not going into government and and, and I – I, you know, I couldn't because, I mean, if I was to go into government now, it would indict everything I've done over the past. Especially if I went into the liberal government right now, you know, as a lot a lot of people in the press guy were thinking about doing because there's these job openings and, you know, chief of staff jobs that pay pretty well and, and uh, or, you know, decom jobs. But uh, that would be
0: a bit more of a guaranteed future than. uh, than, Yeah, I just you know I I think I'd
2: I'd be terrible in government. I would just want to leak everything to reporters because I'd recognize. Oh my God, if I saw a memo and thought that's a great story, somebody should know that. That would be my instinct. I I would be a disaster. Uh, No, I'm not going to go into government. Glenn, thank you. Thanks, Eddie.
0: That's your Canada Land Show. Hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at I read them all and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com and our crowdfunding site is at Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The second installment of CanadaLand at the movies will be on Thursday, February 25th at the Review Cinema. My guest will be Robin Doolittle of The Globe and Mail and the film will be Shattered Glass. If you want to buy tickets in advance, check out our Facebook page. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like what we do, please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.